to the Gab Talks by the Independent Press Award. I'm your hostess, Gabby Olzak. Today, we will be speaking with Don Berg, author of Schooling for Holistic Equity, How to Manage the Hidden Curriculum in K-12, through winner of the 2023 Independent Press Award in Psychology and a Distinguished Favorite in Education. Don is a psychologist with more than 20 years of experience in leading children in self-directed educational settings. He earned a degree in psychology from Reed College in Portland, Oregon, a researcher, alternative education practitioner, leader, and author. Don's work has been published in numerous journals, and he has presented at conferences worldwide. Don is the founder of Attitude, or excuse me, LLC, and the executive director of Deeper Learning Advocates. This is my favorite part. A self-proclaimed recovering faux achiever, Don joins us from the joyful Llama Ranch in West Lynn, Oregon. Wow, that sounds gorgeous. And I would imagine it is. Congratulations, Don, and welcome to The Gab. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here and, and to have this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Well, it's it's really great to have you. So let's start from the top. Okay. Um, why is the American school system in crisis? What do you see as the problem and what's the solution? Yeah, so my perspective on the challenge is is one that's not the usual uh, academic scores are this way or that way. My perspective is more about how the, the people in the system, in the, the students, the children, the teachers are actually disengaged. This is not new data. The Gallup has well documented that both teachers and students are disengaging from their experience of what's going on in the schools, um, which is, of course, if you're disengaged, then you're not learning as well as you could be learning or teaching as well as you could be. And so um, it turns out that psychology has knows about how motivation and engagement work. So engagement is a very solvable problem. In fact, the Carnegie Foundation put out a big report about 2015 that specifically said the achievement gap, that's a big problem. That's, that's, that is a challenge. But the engagement gap is both more pernicious because it undermines fundamentals of learning, but also it's more solvable because psychologists have a real good understanding of how engagement works and what we can do to change it. So the challenge, and we're, we're starting to see some uh, data in coverage of some mental health challenges that are going on in education right now too, uh, with the students, particularly adolescents. That's been a long-term trend, but now it's getting attention, that, some more attention than it deserves, and it's something that is probably worsening. So, so the challenge is really around one of the fundamentals of learning, which is the engagement piece, and we know what to do about it. So so that's where my book is one that, that yes, we're, we're talking about a big problem in education, but it is a very solvable problem and more solvable than what's mostly getting attention, which is these scores and test scores and great things and, you know, academic achievement. That's important, but we can solve a more fundamental problem more easily. So, so that's the fundamental problem is if people are disengaging from learning and teaching, then that's just not, not giving us as a society what we expect of our education system. I agree uh, with so many things that you said. Um, I think there is a, a hyper focus on grades. And I have two teenagers, one who's I'm going to college in September. And there's such a focus on uh, scores, test grades. And I, I think they're definitely learning. They're definitely losing that love of learning in the process. Right. So, so Don, how to, and, and the mental health crisis in the schools, that's a whole other topic. Maybe that could right, be the next right. as a psychologist. So how, Don, do schools become a place where 
both the teachers and the students become passionate again about learning? How, how do we get there? What's your model for that? So the key thing, first of all, is it's not something that the teachers and the students themselves are going to solve alone. It's their, they're the ones who are being disengaged, but they're not the ones who shoulder the responsibility for solving it. The responsibility lies with the policymakers, with people at higher levels, and, and policy occurs at principles at some policies, but the district, the state, you know, there's different levels of policy that are going on here. It's what I call the hidden curriculum. So that's that piece in the, in the uh, subtitle, is the hidden curriculum is something that we have known for you know hundreds a hundred years that is you know, see, John Dewey mentioned it in one of his books many years ago not by name but but he was getting at the same the idea and uh, not to, what is it the, uh, so the hidden curriculum is this piece it's where brains interact with policies to create limitations in classrooms that's really <laughs> what this hidden curriculum is and so we need to shift those policies now part of the way we need to do that is we're a society that is just loves data and. It is a good thing, but you need the right data. And that's one of the challenges we have is that we've been focused on this academic data, which I said is important, but you need to focus on some more fundamentals in how that data is being produced. If you're producing data that is a little bit off, you're navigating in an inaccurate way. So, you know, it only takes a 1% deviation. If you're going from Portland, Oregon, where I am, to Hawaii, 1% deviation puts you hundreds of miles off course if you're, right. you know, going down down the road. So so we need to get those fundamentals uh, of the, the psychology of learning put into policy. So that's the that's the real key. In, in the book, I do have a policy proposal that basically acknowledges what psychologists have been saying for decades is that there's some fundamental aspects of learning that are dependent on basically just psychological needs. So, so, in, so fact, in fact, if I can interrupt you, you, we're all familiar with the model back to basics, the traditional one. Oh, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. And arithmetic. This sounds like you were getting, you were going to start speaking about your holistic back to basics. Right, uh, right. Said, the, the academic is important, but being human in school is also. So tell us right. about that and how it ties in. Yeah, exactly. So that's the strategic plan is what I call Back to Basics 2.0. Now, Back to Basics 1.0, which was really those three R's you mentioned, but it's also kind of strict obedience to the teacher in the classroom and no nonsense, you know, no no, no frilly things. And part of the problem is, is that the way that's usually understood is as if the psychological stuff is not important. So it focuses on, on academics. Now, like I said, that's important, but you need to have some prerequisites in place first. And that's where I get to my Back to Basics 2.0, is the Back to Basics 2.0 is really the enabling the, the school to set up an environment in which Back to Basics 1.0 could be effective. That's a, an interesting question. I don't know if it'll be or not, but, but it certainly makes sense. But first, you have to have the three-part Back to Basics 2.0 is first, teach governance before academics. And actually, teachers already do this. They just don't have the emphasis on it that it needs. So governance, like when the teacher says on the first day of school, you know, what are the rules in our, our classroom or, or says here, these are the rules. Uh, either way, you know, either kids decide or the teacher, someone has to decide what are the rules? What are our expectations? What are we doing together? The problem is that if that's limited just to the first day and then we just go on, don't involve the kids in figuring out how to work with that. Either they make the rules or they figure out how they're going to work with those rules. So that's, that's the first piece is really emphasizing governance before academics so that the academics can then be facilitated. If you look at really high performing teachers like uh, Rafe Esquith in Alonga, Los Angeles, I think, he was recognized. He's had a documentary film made about him. You know, he's actually been pushed out like a lot of 
teachers who get movies made about them get pushed out of systems. But the important thing is he has had a long career in the public schools. And what he emphasized was getting kids online. And then you can do amazing things. You invest in the beginning in these governance pieces, and then you can really take them far when you, once you get going. Uh, the second Don, part, Don, you have you have it. I want to just bring back to this. You have an interesting background. You ran a micro school in the nineties. That's right. What I understand long before it was fashionable, and in fact, in your micro school, you said that the decisions were made by consensus, which is what you're right. saying. The teachers can have that governance the first day, but if you don't continue with that. It, it becomes a challenge. But in your micro school, you said that there was a consensus. So yeah. how did you do that? So first of all, the context in which I was working, homeschooling other people's kids, was very different. So I had a smaller group of kids, uh, and we had the freedom to explore the community. So a lot of it was emphasizing I helped the, had them making decisions every day, important decisions for them about what do, what should we do, how should we do it. Mm -hmm. You know, We would do things like go to the library, go to the parks, go to the museums. You know, we had a lot of opportunities in our community every day. That's just one way of organizing it. Classroom teachers can do it. They may, may not have as many options, but mm -hmm. they can still help the kids make choices. And the key thing here is that these are choices that are important to the kids. Is not any arbitrary choice is going to be psychologically supportive. It has to be the choice that they value that they th find really important. So you can start to, and, and particularly at younger ages, it's really easy to say, okay, well, let's figure something out. It could be within the context of an assignment, you know, just how are you going to do this work? Or it can be what your work should be doing? What should we focus on? And it can work either way. The question, the, the challenge is really, how can I make sure that I'm giving them participation opportunities that are meaningful to them? And then using that to then move forward with, if it's, if you teachers sometimes have to do academic stuff, then Go ahead and do that, but make sure that you're including them in some way so that they feel like, oh, okay, who I am really is really valued because that's one of the psychological needs is relatedness, also autonomy. So both making choices and making sure that there's a relationship within those within which those choices are being made. How do you know what is important to that child? Ah, listen to the child <laughs> is important. Right. Um, we don't do often enough. That's right. That's right. And and it's hard when you're in a classroom. I, I have done some classroom teaching, so it's not 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 in a formal classroom in the same way that classroom teachers are today. But I have done large group of stuff, so it is more challenging. But that's where why governance is also can be thought of as building those relationships. How are you really ensuring that those kids are being heard in some way, uh, making sure that that they have participation opportunities. Kids will respond to the opportunity to participate, even if it doesn't go their way. They appreciate the the fact that they can participate, so that they fit together. <laughs> right. Uh, right, like a puzzle. So, so you right, right. be um, you've championed schools that you admit are the margins of the schooling industry. I think examples right. that you use are um, movies based on true stories that we've probably all seen: Dangerous yeah, Minds, yeah. Freedom Riders. And you see these relationships develop in these schools. Tell tell us about that and the importance of it. Yeah, actually, so really, I, in my way of thinking about those Hollywood movies, is there's one thing that Hollywood gets that actually the school system doesn't seem to, and that is that it is largely starts with relationships. Now the teachers themselves, I'll get it, but this is the way the system is organized. You break up a relationship every year. Like, why would you do that? Why <laughs> doesn't help. Exactly, you know? yeah. So, so the so that's one of the ways that these movies get it right is it's built first on a relationship, and then you develop the expectations that'll take them further. 
Like you mm -hmm. push the kids. So, so this is one of the things, the ironies of, of the way that a lot of education politics run is you have sort of conservatives who want education conservatives, which can be distinct from other kinds of conservatism. But, you know, they want the strict uh, obedience and they want the teachers to f focus on what the, the content needs to be taught. And then you have the progressives who are like, oh, no, but there's th this can be really unfair to certain kids. It can be a real challenge in ways that are deeper. They're both right. <laughs> uh, and that's that's the irony of it is that they both have an element of what is right. And so we need to figure out how do they actually work together. And that's the emphasis. You need to get them into this context where where they're really the, the schools that I actually champion are ones that w are radically different in the sense that they have the kids making choices every day like I did. Um, but they have it in, in a large group, like, you know, kids, a couple of hundred kids together making choices, de defining the rules and then enforcing those rules as well. So they're both defining and enforcing those rules. So these are very different kinds of schools. And they don't have, the particular schools I'm thinking of are, don't have academic requirements. In other words, the kids can choose to go to class or not, but they're always making choices about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And oh, they do learn to read and they do learn the math and <laughs> all those things. Okay. Uh, so it's not like they, they're not handicapped by this. They're, they actually discover that they can make decisions. and. You know, kids actually are smart. <laughs> they figure out, oh, reading something I need to get along in this world. And so they figure out how to do it or they get someone to help them do it. They can, they take classes. Actually, most kids in these schools take classes of one form or another. They just don't have to, <clears throat> but they choose to because kids are naturally curious. Kids are naturally impassioned about some, they'll find their passion and start to pursue it. And turns out that when you pursue a passion, there's probably no passion in the world that doesn't require you to read at some point. <laughs> you know, even if you're doing something that doesn't seem like it does, but there's a guide, there's somebody you have to read, you know, it's going to happen. And so when you give them the opportunity, they actually pursue those things and discover the deeper mechanisms in the culture that allow them to do those things. So you talked about the two sides of the debate, the equity debate. Yeah. What is holistic equity then? What do you consider holistic equity? Holistic equity is looking at equity in a lens that takes the equity piece and really defines it clearly in terms of needs. So the progressive side, who are the, typically the, uh, considered the champions of equity, say, well, there's all these unfair outcomes. And so that's problematic, which, okay, that's fine. But then the conservative side says, well, wait, <laughs> if you use academics or outcomes as the sole means of holding people accountable, then you run into all kinds of problems and they're right. Okay. So once again, we have kind of both right. And so the problem is that if you define equity entirely in terms of outcomes, you come up, you get those problems. So part of what I'm doing is drawing on a national Academy of sciences definition of equity, where they mention needs in one of their three defining uh, uh, statements. And I say, Oh, okay. That's, that's the thing, but add a little bit to it by saying needs need to be the bedrock of, of how the whole definition works. So I put needs into all three statements. But if you define it clearly in terms of needs, particularly the ones that are scientifically validated needs, mm -hmm. the needs for, you know, the psychological needs I mentioned, but you know, air, water, food, shelter, those things, and the psychological needs, then you have something very clear that you can use for accountability that doesn't have the problems of vague outcome-oriented things, is you, you will change those outcomes, but you're doing it, you're ensuring that there's a good, solid, objective foundation for how you're going to proceed for accountability and for how you're progressing. So that's really where it comes down is if you define it in terms of scientifically defined needs, then holistically you end up getting uh, at, at these different levels. So holistic means multi-level. 
So you have to think about not just the individual, but also the, the school, the group, and the society. But when you think about all those levels, it has to start with an individual getting their needs met. And then that individual is going to contribute more to their group, to their society, by having their needs met. That's, that's what the psychology says, is that, oh, when we observe humans, it turns out that when you meet their needs, they are really into contributing to their society. It's not an individualistic view. That's why it's holistic. Is it's not just, oh, what's unfair to me? It's what's what works together. And so, so that's a bigger picture on, on equity, but it's bringing it into a more precise definition that can then be more useful as a society. So, John, you've said that your goal is to make deeper learning become the norm, not that's the right. exception. Yep. Yeah. So folks that are that are listening to you right now, the the leaders in the industry that you are speaking to, the the educators, the principals, the policymakers, in in a sentence or two, how can they get started? Like you said, Hollywood has it down. How do we get started? Right. right. Yeah. Uh, well, well, the the first thing, I mean, just you know, the policymakers need to start thinking about how do you get needs recognized as as this foundation to learning. That's where the policy proposal in the book really is about embedding that policy, uh, the, the needs in policy. So the policy starts stops undermining the learning. So that's what they need to do is start ed getting educated about, okay, how do the needs work? What are they? And how do we put them in the policy so that that becomes a way that they can be held accountable for what's going on? So that's where there's, in education ease, the, the word is climate, is what is the classroom and school climate? And so there are already existing measures for classroom climate, but typically the Youth Truth and Panorama and there's some other ones that have apps and things, is they're gathered, the information's gathered once or twice a year. And it's like, well, teachers need a little more information than that. If you're adjusting once a year and you're changing your class every year, they're like, that's not really actually that helpful. So one of the things I've developed uh, recently after, after writing the book uh, was a climate measure that's actually formative instead of summative. Uh, so it's something that teachers can use, uh, you know, they can measure it one week and two weeks, do some, do, make some changes based on that. And then two weeks later, do it, take another measure and see, okay, what's going on? So that, that is available on my website, holisticequity.org, and it's called a climate tool. Uh, and so if they can start to really focus on ensuring that the children, the teachers can actually just go in and say, okay, let's make sure the children's needs are being satisfied. Um, and principals can do this with their staffs as well, same instrument, uh, would work both ways. Really getting a data stream in place. So that's where the policy comes in is you, you this, yes, I have a tool that teachers can use independent of, you know, kind of a policy. But if the policy's not there, then that's not going to have the systemic effect that we want. We need to have the policy in place that one, acknowledges needs as crucial to learning, and then two, enabling data to be collected about how those needs are being satisfied, empowering teachers to and principals to start to make changes to how their school works to better support those needs. Don, have you heard any feedback from uh, policymakers, educators about the plans in your book? And um, so this is a brand new thing. Um, so it's actually uh, there. There's I get feedback uh, a little bit because it's it's really interesting. Policymakers like it's really interesting to uh, I, I go to conferences and present at conferences quite often. And so uh, I was at a state boards of education conference, and it's funny because part of the way I wrote the book was assuming that a lot of challenges was at that level. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I go to talk to board members, and they're saying. It's not us. <laughs> it's and they point to another level. Of in course, the of course. Uh, and and that's the irony of it is that there are 
this is where the hidden curriculum, it's a hidden piece, is there are enlightened people, so to speak, everywhere in the system. However, they have challenges in ways that it really is not easy to do the right thing. And that's a, that's, that's a big challenge. And so the, that's part of how we have to shape policy, begin to say, okay, we need to acknowledge some of the basic things because all the well-intended humans are trying to do better, but we need to align their align them with a more precise understanding of of what those foundations of learning are and how to better support them. Um, and that's going to take both top down and bottom up efforts to make it to really make this the the change happen. For sure, I I had an experience with um, my older son. He actually, and I'm sure you're fami familiar with this term, Don. He looped a couple of times with a teacher. Yep. So, and that goes back into your, well, you're establishing these relationships with students, which are creating a more passionate environment, but then you abruptly stop and they yeah, have to exactly. start all over again. So the looping was fantastic for him because he continued with this same teacher over the course of two years. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly. So, but, but there are challenges with that, challenges coming from policymakers that don't want to do that. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and and that there there's a variety of ways to do either looping or or having uh, one of the schools that I studied was directly was was one where instead of everyone being assigned a specific teacher in classroom like for all day, uh, mm -hmm. for for the younger age, uh, they work more like community college. Is that you just put out a slate of offerings and those things you know pick the kids can pick and choose. Now that requires once again some interesting challenges, but. But that's the thing is looping's one way to do it, doing offerings or, you know, having having a slate of classes that kids can pick from. Um, there are a variety of ways to do it. And and there are schools that are trying to just en enable age mixing across broader ages as well. There's a, a program in Washington that I'm uh, in talks with trying to figure out how to, how to make that work. So there are a variety of ways to do it. And that's where it's really important to have both that top down and bottom up is that the bottom needs to be able to say, hey, here's what's going to work for our community. It's not going to work for everybody. None right. of it's going to work for everybody, <laughs> except the needs support themselves. But if you figure out how, in your unique community, what is it? Is it looping? Is it is it offering a class? Of, uh, you know, variety and uh, the the menu of options. There's different ways to do it. So there's different ways that that communities can figure it out and make it uh, happen for their community in their unique way. Right, because each community is different. Ex exactly right. So you have an interesting background, John. Well, first of all, I love the fact that you say you're a self-proclaimed recovering foe achiever. Um, right. I want you to I want you to talk to us a little bit about that. But so you completed your undergraduate degree in psychology 25 years after you began. Yeah. Uh, not, <laughs> not lack of intelligence, quite clearly. So what happened there, and what what is a foe achiever? So, faux achievement is the process of doing what needs to be done to get the grade, mm -hmm. but not actually learning it, not retaining, not mastering the lessons that were actually taught. So, just um, rote memorization, for example. You, well, it can be rote memorization. That's one way to do it. Um, okay. I didn't. I was. I'm terrible at rote memorization. So that was not how I achieved my or oh, fake achievement. Okay. Um, it, for me, it was. It was. I would pay attention enough to kind of. I figured it out when I, there was this math class that I had. Um, I had Mr. Schuster. Uh, this is at Long Beach Polytechnic High School in the 80s. Mr. Schuster, he, I, I learned all his, all, you know, I learned enough to pass his test. But the next year, I was taking the assessment at the beginning of the year with my new math teacher, and I failed it so utterly and completely 
my teacher was just like threw up her hands and was like, I, I have no idea what you know, <laughs> I can't teach you. All, I can't teach you two years at one once. Now it turns out that I had uh, taken the SAT the prior year at the end of Mr. Schuster's my year with Mr. Schuster and didn't do as well as I as I wanted to. So I was determined to take it again in December because that was the next time it was offered. So so I had taken this assessment and she said, okay, and she handed me SAT preparation manuals, you know. And and so just do you know and, and so I was in class independent study. I was studying how to take the SAT. Well, wow. my the, all my classmates were actually studying math. Now, it's interesting because English. So SAT has English and math, right? So when you take that, you would think that direct being instructed in English during that time, I would have learned more about. English. So my English score should have improved more than my math score because I was actually being instructed in English. But I got more than twice as much improvement on my math score without studying math. Because I don't know if you know, but SAT preparation manuals do not teach you math. They teach you how to take a test. Yes, I'm very familiar with it. Yes. Yeah, if you have teenagers, you probably my daughter's college. starting yeah. college in September, so we're we're yeah. familiar with that. Yes. So that is clear evidence of fake achievement. Okay. I did not learn any more math. In right. fact, learned how to take the exam. I only learned how to take the exam. Right. And so, and yet my score improved more than, and I was in a college preparation program. Okay. So they know the, how important the SAT is. And that English class should have been doing a lot more to prepare me for taking an English exam than, you know, I, I, I improved on both, but I got twice as much improvement on the math side. So, so, so assumed yeah. on that you're a big proponent of the uh, new current policy sweeping the country that the uh, SATs and ACTs are optional. Yeah, I think that I think it's something that colleges are taking holistic approaches. They're they're all taking yeah. that's that's what they're doing. Right, and and that that's absolutely right. Is that that the SAT has largely been a a brainless way of eliminating more. So so. Big fancy colleges have the problem of having too many applications that they can possibly wade through. Right. And so if you can just arbitrarily, based on a number, say right. these kids don't count and these kids do, right. that saves you a lot of effort. Okay. But but they've done away with that now, and now they're finding that right. it's big business. But that's that's another that's a whole other topic of conversation. But you could, I guess it's safe to say that the the test scores are kind of poster children uh, for faux achievement, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, that is the point. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so it's not that the exams don't do anything. They do some things, but you, you really need to be clear and send, clear about what you're trying to achieve by right. having them take that exam. That's the thing where if it's just unfair, it is unfair just to simply say, based on an arbitrary number, we're going to not even consider a bunch of people. If you have to have a way of of regarding people as people, like okay, they have a unique history, they have a unique opportunity, or, or and some of them are going to take the test well, and some aren't, and that does not reflect their ability to take advantage of a higher education opportunity. Exactly. It reflects other things, so you have to find ways to do that, and that's the that's the thing that that making test scores an arbitrary cutoff is just blatantly unfair but also you know they have to then figure out other ways of wading through so many applications and so they're, they're going to still have to look at grades and say okay we're going to have an arbitrary cutoff for grades which grades are better reflection of something they're not perfect either but that's you know that's a problem that the higher education people in the elite institutions yeah sure they've got a problem but they shouldn't impose that <laughs> you know that shouldn't be the solution for everybody in the system and that's part of the problem is that Absolutely. you know 
each institution needs to have some way of handling their issues. And arbitrary cutoffs is one way that some schools are going to do that, but not all schools should be doing that. And so arbitrarily saying all schools should either have or not have the SAT is, you know, that's just not good policy. Uh, that's not good. That's not good human education either. So human education, that's a big focus of your of your research. Um, now, you did do your well, let's get back to. So what happened in between the, the 25 years? What was oh, yeah. on there? <laughs> that's right. So I did with my improved scores. You know, I got into an elite college. That's, you know, read college, as you mentioned. But that was me on the rails because, you know, I was Obviously, if I'm in a magnet program and taking a C and everything, I'm smart enough to be considered intelligent. But that was just riding the rail. Like I didn't didn't know what else to do with myself, so I went off to college. Um, but three years later, and I did okay enough to stay in for three years, and then chose to pull myself out. So I dropped out of college in '89, I guess it was. But what I dropped into the the only reason that we even worked was because I had a sense of passion about working with children is that uh, in each summer before going off to read, I had this job at a summer camp in, in the mountains of, in Southern California. And I found that I was, and I was working with the probably seven to 12 year olds. And, and I was just like alive and passionate and it was interesting and, and engaging and like the exact opposite of school. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of uh, high schoolers would agree wholeheartedly. Exactly, exactly. So, so for me, I, uh, actually became a certified professional nanny. Wow. Uh, I went to school. I, I dropped out of Reed and became a nanny. Wow. Uh, so so that was my, my like, okay, I'm going to figure out, I'm following this passion to work with children. And, and I went to nanny school. And then I was like, I did a little bit of that work, but then I was like, you know what? That school age, that seven to 12 years old, that's my, that's my sweet spot. So that's why how I ended up homeschooling other people's kids was like, oh, how do I get work with the kids I, that are really interesting and exciting to me? Babies are great, but they're not my jam. You know, that's not the I thing I really yes, want. Yes. So how could I do that? And that's where I ended up homeschooling other people's kids. And then, you know, did a variety of things. Now, this was in the 90s, into the early 2000s. Uh, you know, I didn't work out a sustainable business model. Now, it would be a lot easier today. You can see that there are, are a bunch of programs that micro school programs, because now that's a thing. And and so, yeah, if I had the internet and a bunch of support, that would have been great, but didn't work but it out. there was no such thing then. There was no Yeah, yeah, exactly. It didn't, yeah. wasn't a thing. No. Nope. Um, so that ended up transitioning me to, you know, doing a lot of different things. And then when the economy crashed in 2008, I kind of questioned, you know, like, oh, what's going on? So I went back to school, finished my degree, just because part of the thing was that Reed itself had changed. And I, now there was a professor who studied motivation in educational settings. Like, that's what I want to do. That's <laughs> um, and that's what I've been doing. Okay. Yeah. So, so, and I did my study on a couple of those radical schools, you know, a couple here in Portland, Oregon that, you know, operate where kids are completely at choice. Uh, they get to choose what to do and how to do it and who to do it with and found that they actually maintain intrinsic motivation across the years, which is completely different from all the mainstream schools that have ever been studied over the last three, four decades in which studies like this can be done is that in traditional schools, motivation and engagement decline. Mm -hmm. In these schools, it's at least maintained they because kids are naturally curious. Do they, do they still have the same class size in these non-traditional schools? That entirely depends. So the one of the schools that I studied, as I said, uh, did more of a, like a community college model. And so class sizes were usually pretty small, mm -hmm. um, but it all depended on who showed up, like how much demand there was for the course. They'll pack people into a room if that's what, if that's class is popular enough. Okay. Uh, but also the teachers have the option of saying, I can only handle 
X number of students. And so that'll be the limit. Um, and then they have to wait for another time to do it. So there's a lot more freedom for the teachers in that kind of model. They're respected as professionals and expected. I asked the teachers specifically, I interviewed teachers who had experience in both their alternative that, were, that I was studying and uh, more, nor more mainstream schools. And every one of them said, I'm more respected as a professional. If they had experience in both, it was like, I'm just respected as a professional here because when I go, like this one teacher uh, said she had come from the mainstream system and she was hired into she uh, into this, uh, the homeschool alternative uh, resource center. She decided she wanted to do a knife making course. Okay. This is, uh, serves kids down to elementary, like this is a K to 12 school, right? So she's going to offer knife making. And so she was like, okay, I got to prepare, you know, a safety plan and I got to put contingency plans and I got a budget and I, you know, so she prepared and she goes into the executive director and says, okay, I'm going to do a knife making course. And then she says, okay, what do you need? Really? And it's like, Locking. what? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Wasn't expecting that, was she? Exactly. She was yeah. floored. Yeah, I bet. She, because the executive director knew that this was a consummate professional who mm -hmm. knew her work, who knew her job. And she knew that knife making for kids is like, you know. Yeah, of course, yeah. And so she's going to prepare and she's going to take these kids seriously and ensure that they're going to do so safely. I bet um, it was a very popular course. Yeah, I, do, I actually don't know uh, how well <laughs> it did. But yes, I, I know that she as a teacher was there for many years. I think she's moved on from them now, but uh, I still follow her on Facebook. It's one of those things where, yeah, it... The, the the demand for classes can really alter the dynamics, but that's also an interesting piece of it too, is like, if you're offering something and kids find it boring, they're not gonna come back. So no, you're not gonna sure. have to show up. And so when we talk about school choice, it's like, yes, there's an important piece for parents, but let's think about kids making choices in school and of what classes to take and things like that. So yeah, because if they choose something they're interested in, they'll they'll be successful in it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, or they'll 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 realize that they have challenges and limitations and seek out help. Right. You no, know, they they well, they're not dumb. <laughs> no, they're not. Both is positive. You're you're right about that. Yeah. So yeah. so you know, you, you do have some experience as we discussed in leading children in non school Absolutely. settings, but you don't have a teaching degree or teaching credentials really. So why should folks read your book, four hundred pages and then some right. listen to what you're saying? That's an so, investment. Yeah, yeah, it is an investment. The reason is basically comes down to I did study. I my what I'm offering is psychology, mm -hmm. not pedagogy. Mm -hmm. I'm offering to say I, I have studied this deeply for decades, mm -hmm. uh, and to the you know getting a degree, writing a thesis, getting published, and so that what I'm offering into to educators in particular is a deeper look at some aspects of the psychology of learning. And, and what are those fundaments to enabling that to happen? Not from an academic achievement standpoint, but from a human learning, how do we engage with life and get a, bit, get a better grasp on reality kind of learning. And so that's what I have to offer is a, is a deeper look at what, are the, what is this fundamental learning thing that we all expect to have happen. And it's true, not just I will observe from some on high place and decide what these kids need or what these teachers need but when you when you really think to think it through it's really is it, the teachers have those needs the principals have those needs everybody all the humans in the system have to have these needs and it's cross-cultural it's it is truly universal and so what would it mean to shape the system 
to serve those humans rather than than just serve a system of uh, an economy. We're more than in our economy. We are humans with bigger pictures. You know, like there's a there's more to us than than our loyalties to a party or our loyalties to a country or our loyalties to a school or our loyalties to our mascot or a football team. You know, there's a lot more going on in schooling and education. And so how do we encompass that wholeness? Uh, and that's, that's the holistic part as well. How do we think about all those things and honor people for where they're at well, uh, in addition to holding high expectations for where they're going? Well, that's important is where they're going. We're, we're shaping that now, aren't we, as educators? Right. It's a fantastic book, and I, I highly recommend it to all the folks out there who are listening. Don, what's the most important lesson you've learned in life? So I think it really is uh, uh, recognizing the humanity of, of another, um, really uh, looking out and seeing, oh, who is this person? You know, a lot of my study stuff goes into universal needs, like we're all the same in some ways. But that's true, mm-hmm. but it's not what makes us who we are. What makes us is how do we meet those needs? Like if I look at you as, a, as someone who has autonomy, well, your autonomy is going to express itself in putting together a book award. <laughs> uh, like, wow, you must really be committed to literature way more than I am. <laughs> yes. I'm committed to psychology and I had to write a book to do it. But that's really like, oh, okay, our worlds meet in some way. And that's true of every human being, is our worlds meet in some way. We don't necessarily know how and why, but somehow our worlds overlap. And if I can look out and see and, and see this other person as, wow, you're, you're amazing because you're doing something that I would never do. Um, and that's true for a lot of people for everyone else except me. <laughs> well, Don, you're amazing. And and your website Thanks. is chock full of information. I mean, there is so much in it and so much to learn about and so much to, to listen to and to read. And I see you have it up there, holisticequity.org. So is that where folks can learn all about you and all about your book? Yes, yes. Uh, and, and like I said, I have uh, tools up there for the teachers to be able to do a formative assessment on their climate and, and, and lots of other things too. Uh, there's a videos on almost every page um, because I really want to share my passion and my interest in, in how people are in the world. So Don, lastly, what what's next for you? So my my focus right now is the is getting this tool to be useful. I, I literally just released it uh, just a few weeks ago, and so I really uh, want people to play along with it and and learn figure out how to use it. Really make a difference in your own classroom. And this is this is something that doesn't run into problems with the uh, data because it's anonymously responded to. So that's that's a key focus. And I'm actually going to uh, several conferences uh, coming up in, in various places. I'm going to the Self-Determination Theory Conference in Orlando. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be going to Kathmandu and Ireland. And, wow. You know, I've got a lot going on, um, but I really okay. want to uh, encourage people to take this tool, use it, learn more about these primary human needs and, and, and how motivation engagement work. And then, yeah, everything is available at, at holisticequity.org. Well, looking forward to uh, hearing the feedback that you get from uh, folks looking at the tool and utilizing it. And Don, your work is so important and eye-opening. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So next time on The Gab Talks, we will be speaking with Steve Procco, author of Rebel Correspondent. This is your hostess, Gabby Olzak. Until we meet again, keep on reading. <laughs>